Welcome to another episode of Wild Law Pod. My very special guest today is former governor and former U.S. ambassador to Ireland, Michael Sullivan. Governor Sullivan grew up in Douglas, Wyoming. After graduating from high school, he attended the University of Wyoming, where he received both his undergraduate degree in petroleum engineering and then his law degree. After law school, Governor Sullivan practiced law with the firm Brown, Drew, Macy, and Sullivan in Casper, Wyoming. Just over two decades into the practice of law, he decided to run for governor of Wyoming and won. Governor Sullivan served two terms as governor, being elected as a Democrat in 1986 and 1990. He then returned to the practice of law in Casper after his second term as governor. Then, in 1998, he was nominated by President Bill Clinton to serve as ambassador of Ireland. He served as ambassador for two and a half years under Clinton, and then briefly under President George Bush. Governor Sullivan again returned to the practice of law in Casper after serving as ambassador to Ireland. Governor Sullivan's law practice began to focus on mediation after serving as governor, and mediation eventually became his entire practice, with the exception of a few long-term clients. He is almost completely retired now, except for handling a few mediations he finds particularly interesting and challenging. Today's conversation covers a wide range of topics at the intersection of ethics and mediation. Governor Sullivan shares his broad knowledge of mediation in an easy-to-understand fashion and with tips and advice both mediators and lawyers can put to work in their next mediation. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Governor Sullivan, for uh, joining me today for talking about mediation. I think uh, you've got a very well-known political career and uh, maybe not as well-known of a legal career, and so maybe we could start uh, a little bit of your background in the practice of law. Sure, um, and thank you for inviting me to participate, Justin. I appreciate it. Um, I started practice after graduating from law school in Laramie in Casper with the uh, firm of Brown, Drew, Apostolos, and Massey, Barton and Massey, and uh, was there for approximately 23 years, I think, before I ran for governor went through a midlife crisis and ran for, ran for governor. And uh, that practice covered uh, a myriad of uh, facets. It was a business practice. It was an oil and gas practice. It was a miscellaneous practice uh, mentored by great attorneys and, and uh, very enjoyable. And my anticipation was that I would be practicing law until I peeled over and as my father had done. My dad was a lawyer in Douglas. My grandfather was a lawyer in Laramie. Oh wow. And both of them practiced until until their death. Uh, I also ended up during that early stage doing uh, it, it morphed into litigation, ultimately, and trial practice, uh, largely defending insurance cases, and largely those cases were medical malpractice cases. So that's where my practice was when I, when I decided to run for governor, and running for governor was prompted by the fact that I was taking depositions all over the country, and it seemed like they were just repeats of the depositions I had just taken relating to medical experts and tragic situations and, and other things. And I thought, you know, maybe there's something better than this. So I had always advocated a sabbatical in the practice. 
and the firm had okayed a sabbatical. Uh, we had a we had adopted a sabbatical policy, and I was the first one to decide to try it. But it wasn't the way I anticipated it. Uh, I decided to take sabbatical and run for governor, anticipating that I wouldn't win, and uh, if I could contribute to the conversation, it might be helpful, and I could clear my head and probably feel a lot better about going back and taking depositions when it was all over. And uh, sometimes you have to be careful what you wish for. And I won that and uh, that opened doors and opportunities that I never expected to uh, be able to, to have, nor really uh, lusted after, as a matter of fact. But uh, eight years of, of that, and then I had to decide, okay, what do I do now? And it was going back to practice law because that's what I knew. So I went back with the firm and uh, sort of took another sabbatical uh, by going to Harvard for a semester and teaching at the Kennedy School, not teaching as overstating what I did, but was a fellow at the Kennedy School Institute of Politics. And Jane and I had a fantastic six months uh, in that environment, academic environment, and uh, being with bright young people. And then went back to, to the firm again. And one of, the, one of the questions that I had then and one of the challenges I had then what do I do? What kind of law do I practice? What do people expect a former governor to do in representing them? And I, there was a time when I'd sit in the office and wonder whether I was going to have anything to do. And that was probably when I first became involved in mediation. I started doing, I may have had some experience before, but I don't think much. And, uh, but I thought, you know, mediation, it is not a bad way to practice law. And in fact, mediation in many ways is what I've been doing for eight years as governor. Right. And so uh, I did, I started doing mediation and enjoyed it. And then got a call from the White House about going to Ireland and uh, went to Ireland as U.S. ambassador and had another remarkable and a much different experience. And when I left, uh, when I came back from Ireland, I had again a decision to make. What What do you do now? And I went back to the practice of law, still wondering what I was going to do. And I, during at that time, went with a Denver firm and established an office in Casper. And most of what I ended up doing was mediation and along with two or three litigation pieces of litigation, which one of which lasted a lifetime. And Some of them do. <laughs> they do. And um, practiced uh, for another 15 years about, and uh, then decided that it was time to slow down while I still have my license, have a few mediations that I'm still doing when it, when the challenge presents itself and I decide I'd like to do it. 
and a couple of couple of clients, of, uh, and that's the extent of my practice now. But essentially, I'm retired and enjoying it. That's a very very good place to be. Uh, I'd like to just go back and uh, what was that conversation like when with your law partners when you kind of just said, "I think I'm going to run for governor." I mean, how did that go? It was scary, actually. Uh, my senior partner was a very distinguished and competent lawyer named Bill Brown. And one of the distinctions of both the firm and Bill's personal attitude was politics makes for bad lawyers. And he was, he said that for a long time and nobody in the firm had ever gotten into politics. And so the conversation going to Bill Brown saying, I think I'd like to run for governor was, uh, was a little difficult. The rest of them, it was okay. They were all surprised because it wasn't anything anyone expected me to do. But, uh, but Bill Brown was the one that I worried most about. And he was, uh, he wasn't particularly pleased, but he was accepting. And, uh, now I think you said earlier that you didn't expect to win. When in the kind of the course of the campaign, did you realize that you had a chance? Well, I always thought I had a chance. I think I had to have that viewpoint in order to to uh, be effective on the campaign trail. But it was uh, I knew it, I was the underdog, and and uh, things just kept working positively. But uh, the last day of the campaign, I went down to Lou Tobert's here in town and bought a pair of boots because I thought that's about the only positive thing that was likely to happen to me. <laughs> and uh, then I found out I didn't need to have bought those boots. <laughs> but I've still got them. That is fantastic. Um, but uh, it was a, it was a big, it was a steep learning curve. And I'm always, have always been grateful that my profession was a lawyer when I got into politics because without having had the prior political experience, I don't know how I would have gotten along if I hadn't been a lawyer where you never know exactly what's coming in the door the next day. So you have to be adaptable and and flexible and ability to, to look at problems and make a, a fairly rapid assessment. What were the biggest skills that you had to either learn or develop to function as governor? Well, I think the skills are essentially the same as a lawyer. You need to be an advocate for your constituency and for the state. Um, you need to be able to look at a problem and see the big picture and you know, be comfortable with your judgment. And I think maybe the best, the biggest in, in both professions, politics and the law is you have to be a good listener. And listening is, is a part of, of both. And you have to learn to listen. Then your, I guess it'd be your third career was ambassador to Ireland. Is that a complete surprise or did you have an idea that that might be in the works? 
No, it was a surprise. Uh, I had had some, I had had one brief conversation with Bill Clinton, who was a friend of mine, that said, if you ever find a place that where they speak English, uh, and you need an ambassador, I might be interested. Uh, I like that. But I didn't, uh, I didn't have any expectations because that's a, that's not something that comes along very often. And and I was sitting in the office one day. Uh, I knew there was a I knew there was a vacancy in Ireland, but I didn't. I hadn't applied for it. I had. It was a very popular position. So, folks from New York and San Francisco and Chicago were lined up for it. But I got a call and. This lady from the White House said, you know, your name's on this list for Ireland. I said, really? And uh, she said, yeah, it doesn't seem to fall off. Uh, but we thought we'd better call you and find out whether you were interested. I said, well, I can tell you I would be interested, but I'm not sure that my wife would be as excited as I am. So I can't check with the boss. I have to call you in the morning. And... Uh, I approached that, and after about four hours that evening, Jane finally asked me how my day was, and, and I popped the subject to her, and she said, you waited four hours to tell me that? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I don't know that we'll get it, but they want to know whether we'd be interested, and she said, I'll go along if you want to go, which she said when I decided to run for governor. I'm surprised she... I wasn't surprised, but I admired her for being willing to pull up again and go off to, to an unknown And that's, that's a huge commitment, isn't it? I mean, you're not coming back very often. No, we, we didn't. Uh, we were only back one time, and that was for Christmas, the, the uh, year before we left. So... So does that position... A year before we came back, I may not left. Does that have a preset term to it, or do you... Uh... No, it was... Um, it, it's a political appointment, and so you're there at the uh, decision of the president. And, of course, when the president goes out of office, you're not there. Uh, so... I followed Jean Kennedy Smith, President Kennedy's sister, and she'd been there for five years, which is a long time for a political appointee, but she was a special political appointee. Sure. And uh, so we were there about a little over two years when President Clinton's terms ended. And uh, then they sent out a letter to all the political appointees saying, as of April 1, you're expected to tender your resignation and leave your post. And uh, I was, wasn't was anxious to leave. So I talked to Dick Cheney and said, you know, it makes no sense that political appointees just have to up and leave. They're not partisan. And uh, so leave me as long as you can. So I got an extra three or four months. That's fantastic. And uh, was thrilled to, to be able to stay a little longer. Sometimes it's very helpful to be from a small state. 
it is always very helpful to be from a small state, in my opinion. What is what are the job duties of ambassador to Ireland look like? Well, I I went to Ireland just shortly after the Good Friday Agreement about uh, relating to the Northern Ireland issues called the Troubles was signed. It was signed uh, Good Friday of 1998, and I went in January of 1999. So that was was still there to facilitate the implementation of the Good Friday Agreement, which is now still trying to be implemented. I mean, it's not a perfect solution, but it, it has it has worked, but it still ha- they're still trying to make sure it's together and form a government. So our largely one of the issues was the Good Friday Agreement and trying to do whatever we could from the Republic of Ireland working with the the folks in Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland to facilitate and implement the agreement, make sure it held together. So that, that dominated the uh, landscape. But there were also, it was, it was a time of the economy of Ireland being red hot. There were 600 plus U.S. companies doing business in Ireland. So that was a part of, of it as well. And then just what all ambassadors do, the, the primary issue is making sure that people that citizens of the U.S. that are in in Ireland, in the country you're posted to, are safe and have the ability to know that the embassy is there to be sure that they are safe. And so there were a lot of a lot of business there because there's so many, so much back and forth. And um, and then represent representational at dual one representing the views of the administration to the government of Ireland in my case and explanation of why the why the uh, US government was taking certain positions on issues and responding to their questions about what they needed and what the what they were interested in and representing the U.S. and the administration in in a social sense uh, with other diplomatic missions in the country, with organizations like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which had one, and the Irish Chamber of Commerce, which certainly had an interest in our relationship between the countries, and private organizations, nonprofit organizations, so it was a combination of of responsibilities. How big is the team that you're in charge of at the embassy? I think there were about uh, 120 people, and uh, the uh, 30 or 40 of those were U.S. Uh, State Department people. The rest were. Irish employees, and then uh, the Marines had a a contingent there that were designed to protect the 
embassy itself and the papers in the embassy. Were you ever near any of the violence that was occurred over there? Well, we were near because everything, Ireland's a little bit like Wyoming, everything is near. Gotcha. But uh, never impacted by it, really. And, and I always say I had one of the luxuries in both Ireland and Wyoming that I valued, and that was I didn't have to have personal security. That all changed after 9-11, and, which was shortly after I left, and the whole security uh, area changed. But we had security at the residence, uh, but uh, it wasn't, I didn't have to travel with security. Or, well, I certainly still remember as a kid uh, eating breakfast on Sundays at the Hitching Post and being amazed that our governor would come up and know our name and say hello after you drove this state suburban uh, <laughs> to breakfast. <laughs> so. Well, it was, uh, as I say, it was one of those things that uh, we, the benefit of being in a small state, and uh, I was thrilled not to have security. But that uh, changed both in Ireland and here after I moved from the positions I held them security immediately became a, an issue. Now both, uh, it seems to me, both being a governor and an ambassador would be incredibly helpful in terms of the skills that it helped develop when you come back and continue your mediation practice. Could you talk about that? Yes, uh, as I said, as I said before, I think the skills, the skills are essentially the same. And, and the first and foremost being a good listener and having flexibility, uh, understanding the benefits of compromise, and, um, and being able to look at complex uh, issues and sort out the wheat from the chaff and Look at the big picture. Well, that, that's kind of a good place to talk about maybe one of the specific duties um, of a mediator um, kind of is to be able to be competent to handle a dispute. When you've got something that you've never dealt with before, how much of that is on the mediator's shoulder and then how much can you ethically rely on counsel to kind of bring you up to speed on maybe the nuances of a very complicated situation? Well, it's uh, it's a little bit a little bit like the practice of law. I I tried a lot of cases about matters that I didn't have any competency sure. in sure. when I went in, but you learn a lot about them, a lot about it uh, as you prepare and get ready to if it's a trial or or a contract dispute or whatever it is to res try to resolve it. So the preparation is is important. And I never felt that as a mediator, I necessarily had to have a competency in the specific subject of the mediation. That role was for the lawyers to, to teach me about it and to uh, advise through their preparation and, and so on in a way that I could, as a mediator, understand it enough to be helpful in facilitating a, 
resolution. But the beauty of being a, a mediator is you're not making the decision. Uh, the decision is up to the parties and, and their counsel. And so you can provide impressions and, and so on, but uh, rarely is it you're making the decision. Now, you might end up making a recommendation that becomes the resolution, but uh, it's not your decision. In, in your role as a mediator, do you need to, I guess, do you need to kind of police the attorneys to make sure that they're not exerting undue influence on the, on the clients, or is, is that part of your job? Well, I, I don't know that it's part of the job, but it's certainly part of what you deal with. And I never considered it in the in the standpoint, are they exerting too much influence? Uh, from time to time, I thought, for purposes of mediation, attorneys were over-advocating in a way that wasn't necessarily helpful to, a res- to reaching a resolution. And so, I, I certainly think you try to control that. So, if the mediation is going to be successful, you don't have sets of attorneys that are so uh, overcome with their advocacy that that they make resolution impossible. And that that can certainly be an issue. And on that line, uh, what advice would you give to attorneys to help them understand how to balance between that zealous advocacy of, you know, say, you know, if you're in a trial, it's obviously 100% zealous advocacy, but in a mediation, you've got to balance that with the goal of resolution. What advice would you give to attorneys about that balancing act? Well, uh, you would hope that by the time they get to mediation, that there is a certain balance that has already taken place. And I've, I've always said that, and, and to the clients and the participants in the mediation, that you know, one of the biggest steps in getting this resolved is that you're here. You're willing to mediate this and recognize that there may be a way that it can be negotiated and resolved with the help of a neutral third party. And and so you always hope that, in fact, they are there with that in mind and that in the attorney's instructions on the mediation process and the negotiations process, they have helped the client and themselves reach a position where they're flexible and adaptable and can consider uh, a compromise and are willing not to, not to draw a line immediately over which you can't step because that's deadly. As a mediator, are you allowed to give the parties legal advice? Well, no. Uh, I shouldn't. I don't think people should be giving parties legal advice. That's up to their counsel. And in my mediation agreement, I said I am not the lawyer for the parties, not the lawyer for the attorneys. I am a, a neutral. 
but I may make observations and recommendations. Uh, you know, there, there's a discussion in mediation between uh, facilitative mediation and evaluative uh, mediation. And I always viewed myself as an evaluative uh, mediator. That is, I'd look at it and I'd uh, listen, but at some point I was likely to make recommendations. Now, I wouldn't call it legal advice. Uh, I may I may from time to time make observations that would that would border on somebody could argue were legal advice, but that that wasn't what I intended. It was just risk reward issues, and if somebody was misstating what I thought the law was, I, I might tell the lawyers, "I think you're wrong," but uh, I wouldn't say that I did or would give legal advice because I, as a mediator, I don't think should be. Now, I like hearing you mention the value or yeah, evaluative or the facilitative different styles. Um, I've had a number of different mediators over the years and some of the evaluate, <laughs> evaluative um, styles are almost feel like you're being bludgeoned by a, a sledgehammer. Uh, how would you kind of describe your own personal use of that style? Um, well, I would hope I would hope that I wouldn't be described as someone who bludgeoned the, <laughs> the parties or the attorneys. <laughs> Uh, to reach an agreement, and I've certainly, from time to time, had strong feelings about where where people were, and would be motivated to try to, through observing and through discussion, after having fully listened to the to the various aspects of the case, uh, to make recommendations. But I always catch them, and I can't make this decision for you. This is not my decision. I can tell you what I think the risks may be, and in that way, I may I may motivate you one way or the other. I can tell you what the challenges and the costs, both economic and personal, may be in having to go to trial because we've been there, and I know I've seen what happens to people who go to trial. And I can tell you that, you know, if you don't settle it here, a third party is going to make the decision for you. You have no control over the outcome. The beauty of mediation is you have control over the outcome. But I I wouldn't uh, go so far as to say I tried to bludgeon anybody into a result. And I think that that style is, you know, especially done in that matter, is much more effective with the long-term kind of result. I mean, either way, if you get it resolved, it's great if you've explained kind of the reasons why it should resolve. But I know that some of the, I call them bludgeoners, but uh, <laughs> they kind of justify it by saying, I'm going to do this to each side. But yeah. Often, I think, even when the case is settled, the result is not is great when one when each side's been told how terrible and, and wrong they are 
Well, and and um, mediation is not unlike buying a used car. There's buyer's remorse. You can anticipate it or seller's remorse uh, the next day. And you don't want people who wake up with that saying, that wasn't my decision. That was the mediator's or counsel's decision. That's not what I wanted to do. That isn't helpful to maintaining um, an effective result to the res- to the mediation. And coming back to kind of the attorney's role in the mediation, uh, what can attorneys do to make sure that they're helping to push towards a settlement without kind of crossing the line of, you know, basically telling their clients that they have to do something or that, you know, either this or that? Well, I think the the best, the, the maybe two things, and there are probably more, but that come to mind right now are, one is prepare, like anything else in the law. Prepare and make sure that the mediator and the other side understands what your positions are. And, and two is not over-advocate. I mean, there is a time for over-advocating the advocacy and making sure that people understand what your position is. But oftentimes, lawyers don't ever, in, in the course of mediation, don't give up their advocacy. And as you're going through and getting toward a place where you're negotiating and trying to find common ground, if the lawyer is still advocating hard on the client's rights or wrongs, then that's contrary to and counter to the best result for a mediation, I think. And oftentimes, I mean, we can all understand why that happens. Sometimes you have to do that to make sure your client doesn't think you're selling them out. And uh, and that if this isn't successful, you're not, you're not going to give up on them. Uh, and as a result of that, I've, in many cases, it was clear to me that the lawyer was trying to preserve his, his role, his position and influence with client. And from time to time, a lawyer, I would, in a private conversation, say, I need you to tell him this. I can't. I can't tell him this because I'll lose my effectiveness. And I understand that. That that happens, and that's when you have to get a little more evaluative uh, in, in the process, in my opinion. In going to that, um, I mean, I think part of a lawyer's job is to be objective, um, but obviously there's degrees of everything in being a lawyer. And I mean, how often do you see that where... I think it's unfortunate when it happens, but really the the lawyer hasn't told the client what they needed to hear for like nine or 12 months, and they just want you to be the honest one with the client. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say the majority of times, but it's, uh, it, would, it could be a significant amount. And the, the other thing is, and you know this as well as I do, there are lawyers that just can't be objective. Sure. When they, when they take a case... And there, I, I had, 
I had a partner like that one time. He took a case. There were no negatives. He, he could not see the negatives. It was all positive. And in many ways, that's very helpful. That, that makes you a great advocate. Uh, it helps make you a, for your client. But when you get in mediation, you're, you're in a different forum and, and you need to be able to, uh, to negotiate and, and have the flexibility and adaptability that I talked before. The other, the other point that I would make, and I, I think it's in part responsive to your question, is one of the, one of the issues in mediation is prematurity. Uh, there are many cases where people decide to mediate for whatever reason. And they really, and the, the, the fruit isn't ripe yet. And if it isn't, whether it's key depositions or, or document discovery or whatever else, it makes resolution much more difficult. I don't know how many mediations I've been in where they did, when they didn't work. And, and my experience in mediation is usually it does work for a number of the reasons that we've talked about. When they get there, people are ready to at least consider resolving this dispute. But the ones that don't uh, oftentimes are, you know, you're right, we're a little early on this and we haven't really gotten to a point where one or either of the parties necessarily can feel the pressure of what might happen in a, in a courtroom. Is that something you try and determine before you actually sit down to mediate, or is that something that tends to just come out in the process of mediating? Uh, it's usually uh, something that, come, in my experience, something comes as a result of the mediation because you don't see the circumstances until shortly before the mediation when you get the mediation statements. And that's a little late to say this isn't, isn't going to work. And, and even then, you can't necessarily evaluate everything that's likely to motivate the parties. Well, and I'd just like to get your take maybe on the current status of this, because it seems to be something that's coming back. But uh, I remember when I first started, uh, most mediators would have the attorneys do opening statements in front of the parties. And often that was like taking six to 12 steps backwards if you had a true advocate on one side um, who had to tell the other side how awful they were <laughs> right to their face. And it, that's kind of gone away, um, or at least it did, but it, it seems to be creeping back. What are your thoughts on that, <laughs> that kind of opening statements by lawyers technique? Well, I don't have, a, I don't have an opinion as to whether it's creeping back, but it, it would be consistent with the rest of society if it were creeping back, it seems to me. But uh, that's, uh, that's a good question because it's one of, my, one of my views about mediation is I rarely uh, advocated in favor of opening statements. Now, there were cases where we did it and I always consulted with the lawyers as to what they wanted, but my recommendation was not to do opening statements because 
that meant first half day of the mediation, I was trying to peel the parties off the ceiling as a result of the advocacy that took place in front of them. And I didn't think it was a, a productive. It's interesting because most of the things you read about mediation, uh, mediators are recommending opening statements. So, and this may be a reflection of how old my uh, my reading material is. But uh, I always I always thought that's counterproductive in most cases. And and I tell the lawyers, look, you can't help but be a, a hard-charging advocate. In your opening statement, you can say for the jury, this is trying to get this resolved, and that, in my view, isn't going to get it resolved at this stage. I think that's the smart way to do it. It's so hard to, as a lawyer to walk the act, then, you know, advocating and, you know, encouraging compromise when you're put on the spot to make an right. opening statement. And then you've got to explain why you're going back on what you said in the opening statement when you're trying to convince the client that it may be necessary to solve this. Yeah, and it's not exactly a great spot to sit down in front of your clients and, you know, point out the weaknesses in front of the other party, right. which is kind of part of what you need to do in mediation, but it's just not a great forum yeah. for it. And and that that brings up one of the other things that I think is particularly important, both for lawyers to understand and to develop during the mediation, and that is you've got to avoid the personal hostilities. You can't avoid them all altogether, but to either encourage it or let the client continue the hostilities that they may harbor without saying that's that doesn't have any role in this. We're trying to resolve this and you, you're not going to be able to solve your personal thing. You can't resolve it if, you, if your goal is to take care of your personal hostilities. That isn't going to happen. Well, that kind of goes to another thing. I mean, does a client have a right to just make an outright stupid decision? Well, I think, of course, I'd say yes. I don't know that's in the Constitution. We all make stupid decisions and uh, from time to time, and clients oftentimes do, and, and they may not be blaming. I mean, you may not be able to blame them for it. They... They're motivated by their own view of the world and their own uh, emotions, and whether, what, however effective the lawyer is, they may have to make a stupid, stupid decision. And along that line, uh, do you feel that the mediator and, let's say, the attorney for the client who is just hell bent on making the stupid decision have a at least a obligation to make sure that the client makes a fully informed stupid decision? I do. And I think if you see that, uh, as, as I talked about evaluative mediation, that would be part of the evaluation. And say, look, I don't think this is a, a particularly good decision, but it's your decision. And that's what we told you when you came in. This is, we're not, I'm not making this decision. It's for you and your attorney to, to talk about and and yet, ultimately, it's yours. And and one of the one of the other things I'd say, just uh, 
so as not to to miss it in the course of this discussion, is two things actually. One is I tell usually tell people, look, we may be successful in this, or we may not be successful. We don't know that at this stage. This is early on. But the one thing I can tell you is I've never been involved in a mediation that both sides didn't come out better for having been involved in the mediation because they know more about the case. They know more about what their opponent's position is. And they may know more about the weaknesses and the strengths. And so I think both the lawyers and the, and the clients ordinarily would come out feeling better about it because, okay, I understand this and I know where we've got to, we've got to look and what issues we have to overcome and we'll do that. And um, the other point I was going to make is that one of the great things about mediation, in my opinion, is oftentimes clients just want somebody to hear their story and to be able to listen, as, as a mediator does, uh, to their story as a neutral third party uh, is very beneficial to them and in so many ways makes them more willing to adapt. And, and then to have the discussion, that's okay, I understand. And that's what mediators do, you know, I'm listening to you, I understand where you're coming from. You may be wrong on this point or that point, but I, I hear you. Well, I know that oftentimes the mediation may fail on the day of mediation, but then, you know, it's still is successful, you know, either a week or kind of a month later. Is there kind of a sweet spot that you found where you'll try to reach back out to the parties um, after a mediation? And kind of how do you evaluate that situation? Uh, it depends on the mediation, I think, where, where it ended and where they left it. But I agree with you uh, and usually say to people when we conclude the mediation, if it was unsuccessful, look, what I just said, I've never seen a mediation where people didn't benefit from what they learned. And two, many mediations I've seen uh, where people will decide a week later or the next time a deposition comes up that, uh, you know, that maybe wasn't such a bad idea that we turned down. And uh, so that... There is, I, I don't know that I've ever tried to identify the sweet spot, but within the first couple of weeks, I usually try to see if there's any. Or the lawyers are back to me saying, you know, we've, we've looked at this and we think that we can get it resolved. In your career as a mediator, have you seen many instances where you felt that a party really was there in, in, in bad faith? And if so, how did you kind of address that situation? Um, I don't think I've seen very many. Most of the ones that come to mind are those with insurance companies where the insurance, and it usually is a case where the insurance company is 
participating at a distance or with somebody who really doesn't have the authority. And that becomes pretty obvious early uh, that they really don't have any intention. Maybe a judge told them they had to mediate this or whatever else. Uh, they really don't have any intention of resolving that. And, and I, I've, I haven't seen too many where the lawyers, where it's non-insurance and the lawyers have come in, or maybe it is insurance and they've come in and uh, everybody that needs to be there is there. Because I, I always disliked, and I, it's no, nothing new, I think a lot of people do, a mediation where you were trying to negotiate with somebody on the phone. They don't, now, things are, I, I haven't done that many, maybe I've done none on Zoom, but Zoom changed a lot of things. But it was clear, it, it was clear to me that if you, were, if you had somebody on the phone, they weren't going to enjoy, to use, carefully use the word enjoy, the dynamics of the mediation and the dynamics of the mediation are part of what makes it work. I know prior to COVID, we would always insist on having an adjuster be physically present for the mediation. Um, and now that COVID's fading away, we're starting to, you know, do that again. And I guess this is just kind of from my knowledge, because I've never seen the other side of it, but what is kind of the dynamic of, of talking to an adjuster, you know, who's maybe seen like thousands of cases? I mean, how, how do you, I mean, how do you talk to a person like that who has like this vast amount of knowledge and probably a computer program that's told them what this is worth? I mean, what's the, that conversation look like? Um, I don't know that, that you can describe a dynamic for that. Um, it is simply trying to, to have him, have him or her understand the, the impact of the case to their insured. That, well, not only to their insured, but largely to the other side, usually when there's personal injuries involved and uh, how this may how this may differ but you you know you get all kinds and um, I'm reminded of, of one case a serious medical malpractice case that I was uh, mediating and I walked in and they had that everybody was there and the chief guy that was there was obviously a high-powered adjuster and uh, and I brought the the other side's first offer and, and he proceeded to get tell somebody to check the planes and when the, when when he could catch the next plane like he was he was going on and, and I looked at him and said, you know, you're just sitting there marking your territory. 
if you want to get this resolved, <laughs> I like it. We we uh, we can talk about it. If you don't want to get it resolved, then go catch that plane. But this is the first offer, and you can't be walking out on the first offer if you really have any interest in in resolving this case. And you know he. In a way, I marked my territory too. Right. <laughs> Said, please, if you want to get it resolved, we'll we'll continue. But if not, go. And we got it resolved ultimately. But uh, he, he came in with that with a, what I'd call a city attitude that uh, thought he was going to take care of this. Did you find that after? He- prior to being an ambassador, but after being a governor and coming back and kind of getting into the mediation practice that, because I, you know, lots of attorneys have various degrees of, um, I guess, experience, numbers of trials, one, all that. And usually you talk to your client about that to explain to him why the mediator is, is good to help us get this resolved. Um, did everyone kind of look at you a little differently or did you feel that you were treated differently once you had, you know, former governor as part of your title? Um, that was the that was the issue I worried about when I went back to practice, you know, who do I represent and what what's their view going to be? And I've finally it, it just faded away. I didn't worry about it anymore. I think in many ways, in some cases, the reason I got hired as a mediator was because whatever gravitas comes along with being a governor, somebody thinks may be helpful in getting it resolved. But most of that went away in the course of the mediation. You know, everything else came right back to to uh, listening and understanding. You know, it's important, I think, for the mediator to be as well prepared as the lawyers. And I can think of a couple of mediations where the reason we got it done is I was better prepared. I knew more about the case than the lawyers had, than the lawyers did, uh, simply because I I had just gotten into it and just had looked at it, and they, for whatever reason, had, had not seen some of what I was able to see. That didn't happen very often, don't misunderstand me, but it's, it goes back to this not seeing the mediation, people weren't benefited by it. Well, and, you know, kind of along the lines of the politics, and kind of it came up earlier with the degree of polarization and kind of anger in our society. It's so much so that I think it's, you know, the politics are spilling into, into every aspect of it. Have you noticed any shift um, just, you know, being a career Democrat in the state of Wyoming, it was just kind of a unique thing in the past. And now there's a lot of actual anger. Um, well, at first, you know, Republicans who aren't Republican enough, but certainly Democrats, have, has that affected the mediation practice at all? Or, or has that kind of just been kept out of it? I haven't. I haven't seen it um, at all. Uh, but that may be a reflection of, how many since COVID started? Uh, you know, my mediation has been fairly limited. 
Uh, but undeniably, it's impacting everything else in our society, so I wouldn't be surprised to see it. Although I, I give lawyers for being smarter, credit for being smarter than, uh, than a lot of other areas, like maybe politicians, and not letting things get in the point where you can't get anything done. What would you say are probably the, the three or four um, things that you observe lawyers doing that prevent um, mediations from reaching resolution? Um, well, one obvious one that we haven't really talked about, and it's so obvious as it probably is not that important these days, is that is drawing a line in the sand before they get to the mediation, or even drawing a line in the sand at the mediation. Uh, I always said to, to lawyers, don't give me your bottom line. Don't tell me this is your bottom line, because that's going to ruin my effectiveness and stand in the way of getting this done. Just tell me that you want to you know, let me know that you're willing to try to get this done and then we'll work toward getting to a, an acceptable number. We've, we've talked already about over-advocacy. I think that's one of the things that's the same thing as drawing the line. If you over-advocate, all of a sudden you, you put yourself in a position of potential compromise with your client. Uh, and I suppose another, a third one would be lack of civility and personal hostility. By because lawyers aren't immune from from having their own hostile attitudes toward either opponent clients or opponent attorneys, and. That's never particularly helpful. And I guess in a in a situation where you're dealing with, like, let's say, extreme behavior of a lawyer, you know, uh, preventing resolution, is it ever appropriate and or necessary for you to speak with the clients without their lawyers present? I have uh, done that, and. Uh, I was going to say rarely, but it may be less, maybe a little more than rarely, but only with the only with the lawyer's permission and and with some discussion with him to give an understanding of what it is that I'm likely to talk to them about or why why it is I think it would be would be helpful. Uh, but I think it. It probably it may very well, and I'm, in my memory, I don't know exactly, but have arisen in as many times at the lawyer's suggestion as my own. Oh, wow. But, uh, but it doesn't happen that, that often. Hope, hopefully, at least. And then on the more positive 
kind of note what are kind of the three or four things that lawyers do, um, you know, that while they're zealously advocating for their clients, that they do along with that to help facilitate a resolution of mediation? Well, I'd say the, the top one maybe is to have a resolution attitude, uh, whether it's expressed or unexpressed, but have an attitude that says this is a case that we ought to be able to resolve and we should resolve for the benefit of the clients. And, um, and then, you know, be honest with the mediator if that, if that isn't the case so that the mediator can, can work on that attitude or, or understand it and say, look, we, we're not going to get this done because it's the mediator that knows what the attitude is on both sides and, uh, and can evaluate, okay, is there, are we going to be able to move toward a, a, a resolution? Thank you. Well, we're about at the end of our time and, uh, any final thoughts you might have on no, uh, I appreciate the, the opportunity to, to sit down and visit with you about it. I, I, one of the things I was thinking about in preparation were some of the, some of the cases that I've had that stand out in my memory. And I think who would have ever thought that I'd have to have to deal with this, um, and one that one that came to mind is a, a woman who represented herself. Oh no! Who uh, suffered from? And I won't be able to give you the medical name, uh, but facial amnesia. Never heard of that. And it, you can look it up, and it's got a, a fancy name to it. But she. She didn't have any, she'd, she'd had a, a brain trauma early in her life, and presumably that's what, what caused this, but she could look at you and talk to you, but she couldn't recognize your face. She couldn't even recognize her own face. Wow. And so she identified with clothes and and other, and it got her it got her into a strange position and trouble, and and uh, it was one of the most fascinating both cases to prepare for and to learn about because uh, I'd never heard of it before either. Did you consult with any like physicians or anyone about no. it? No. Uh, but I consulted, uh, I did read a lot, uh, some, some very interesting, great articles about it and, uh, and was able to talk to her and, and enjoy talking to her when I, cause I knew by that time about as much as anybody she ever talked to about facial handling. It's incredible. Uh, but it was a, it was it was good, good fun. 
And were you able to get it resolved? Got it resolved. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah, that was fun. And, you know, I was, uh, she, it was the principle of the thing, uh, largely for, for her. It wasn't like she'd been injured, but she'd, she'd gotten arrested. Uh, and uh, it was a very interesting case, and then, the, you know, it continues. So it's been a very rich experience, both the, the practice of law and mediation. Well, thank you so much. It's okay. been wonderful talking to Justin, you. Justin, my pleasure. I enjoyed it. Great. Thanks.